Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. Welcome to our podcast. This is your host, Anastasia Wilson. Today's topic is fentanyl. We will be discussing its history, uses, and implications in the opioid crisis. We have a special guest here with us today, Abril Ruiz Lopez. It's great to see you again, Abril. Thank you, Anastasia. It's good to see you as well, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to shedding light on this important topic to our listeners. So why don't you start us off by explaining exactly what an opiate is? Sure. To provide some background, opiates are a class of drugs derived from the opium poppy plant, while opioids are an umbrella term of similar chemicals, which include natural, synthetic, or prescription drugs. Opioids are analgesic drugs that reduce the intensity of pain signals reaching the brain. In addition to providing pain relief, opioids can also produce feelings of relaxation and sleep, but at high doses can cause coma and death. Fentanyl is a synthetic, highly potent type of opioid, which is about 50 times stronger than heroin and about 100 times stronger than morphine. This means that very small amounts of fentanyl have intense analgesic effects. There are two types of fentanyl, pharmaceutical and illicitly manufactured fentanyl. Pharmaceutical fentanyl is used to manage severe, acute, or chronic pain, such as from the result of cancer, nerve damage, back injury, major trauma, and surgery. Wow. The potency of this drug really makes it stand out against other opiates. Fentanyl is one of the most common drugs associated with the current opiate crisis, right? Yes. The opioid epidemic is a serious national health crisis that involves the misuse of and addiction to opioids, including prescription pain relievers, heroin, and synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Synthetic opioids are now the most common type of drug involved in overdose deaths in the United States. According to the CDC and the National Center of Health Statistics, about 130 people have died every day from opioid-related drug overdoses. This was the estimate for 2018 and 2019 and based on provisional data. It was also reported in 2017 that about 60% of opioid-related deaths involved fentanyl in particular, as compared to about 15% in 2010. I think we should lean into discussing what fentanyl was originally developed for now. So as one could imagine, the sheer potency of fentanyl made it a lucrative product on the drug market. It was quickly brought into the medical field and used intravenously as an anesthetic in the 1960s. Right. Fentanyl was first made pharmaceutically by Dr. Paul Janssen in 1959 as a pain reliever for patients with cancer or those in hospice care. The popularity of fentanyl rose quickly because it required such small doses to have a strong pain-relieving effect and also cost less to produce. And then in the 1990s, drug patches were developed. 
These patches utilized alcohol gels infused with specified doses of fentanyl and were primarily used for the treatment of chronic pain in cancer patients. The drug is released into body fat and slowly leaches into the bloodstream over a time period of two to three days. This makes patches more efficient for pain management because they provide long-term relief. The way someone takes drugs affects how quickly and how much of the drug will get to the target location in the body. Fentanyl was initially administered through a spinal injection or an epidural in hospital patients. An epidural is an injection that goes in your epidural space right outside of the membrane that protects the spinal cord. This method of administration is the quickest and the most direct way of producing pain-relieving effects since it bypasses the blood-brain barrier, which protects your brain from foreign substances in the blood that could injure the brain. It is also used intravenously. In this way, the drug goes directly into the bloodstream for an intense response. This is why many people overdose after injecting a high amount of drug. And as he's described in Asasia, fentanyl patches applied on the skin are more efficient for chronic pain management due to their slow absorption and localized action, which causes drug effects to persist for a longer period of time. When used as directed under the supervision of a licensed physician, fentanyl patches have a low abuse potential. Interesting. It's scary to think that illicit users likely think that patches are a safer way to use the drug, but obviously the only truly safe way to use such powerful drugs is under the care of a doctor. That being said, fentanyl is presently used for medical purposes, especially as a post-operative analgesic, and for pain management in people suffering from chronic pain. A 2019 New York Times article about fentanyl production in China states that because it is cheap to produce, fentanyl is commonly sold as a street drug. According to American Addiction Centers, fentanyl is easy to pass off as other drugs because it is often mixed into pills that appear to be legal prescriptions. So oftentimes, people will take heroin, cocaine, MDMA, or other substances without being aware that they contain fentanyl. Many people overdose this way because their bodies aren't used to such a potent drug. Correct, and fentanyl is sometimes mixed with other drugs to increase potency. Some effects one might feel when taking fentanyl as directed by a physician include pain relief, nausea, vomiting, slowed respiration, and reduced blood pressure. And the overdose effects include cold, clammy skin, coma, and respiratory depression that could lead to death. Because of fentanyl's powerful opioid properties, it is illicitly used for an intense short-term high. Overdose occurs when a surplus amount of drugs, in this case opioid drugs, binds to the opioid receptors of cells that control breathing. Because fentanyl has known medical uses and has a high potential for abuse, it is a Schedule II narcotic under the United States Federal Controlled Substances Act. To provide a little background, in 1970, the U.S. Controlled Substances Act created a system called the Schedule of Controlled Substances that ranks the abuse potential of drugs. The system is set up so that a low schedule number indicates a higher abuse potential. Later on, we will be discussing whether the current scheduling of this drug is scientifically sound. Would you now care to explain to our listeners how the opioid crisis got out of hand? Yeah. According to the National Capital Poison Center, pharmaceutical companies began assuring medical providers that the risk of opioid addiction was little to none following the introduction of pain patches in the 1990s. Pharmaceutical representatives also started promoting opioid use for non-cancer patients, and by the end of 1999, about 86% of patients using opioids were using them for non-cancer-related issues. 
as opioid-related deaths started increasing, tighter regulations were enforced and it became more difficult to access legally. In turn, this created demand on the black market, which led to a massive surge in addiction and overdoses. Wow. It's interesting how legal attempts to control these drugs often end up leading to higher rates of use and addiction. Given the regions of the brain fentanyl targets, it's easy to see why opiates are so highly addictive. Let's now talk about how opiates generally operate in the brain. Well, like all other opioids, fentanyl works by binding to the body's mu opioid receptors. These receptors primarily exist in areas of the brain that control perception of pain and emotions. Brain activity in response to pain doesn't only occur in one area, but instead shows up in multiple brain regions. The limbic system is the most heavily involved with emotional regulation and includes brain regions such as the hypothalamus, thalamus, amygdala, and hippocampus. And to give some background, the basic building blocks of the nervous system are neurons, which are specialized nerve cells that transmit chemical and electrical signals in the brain and throughout the body that allow you to think, act, and respond to stimuli from the world around you. Neurons talk to other neurons by sending fast-moving electrical impulses that release chemical messengers called neurotransmitters from the end of a neuron into the synaptic cleft, which is a tiny space between the end of a neuron and the beginning of another neuron. Neurotransmitters bind to its corresponding receptor located on the outside of the neuron like a key in a lock. Drugs can bind to these receptors in order to act like a neurotransmitter or to block neurotransmitters from binding to the receptor. By binding to the receptor, drug molecules can produce a wide range of effects in the body. Are there any other further details you'd like to discuss about these mechanisms? Yes, I'd like to discuss some recent research on this. As we previously mentioned, opiates produce effects in the body after binding to opioid receptors. Researchers have worked with mice to measure the expression of mu opioid receptors in the spinal cord, ganglia, and skin to determine their involvement in fentanyl's analgesic effects. A study in 2018 showed that healthy mice and mice with melanoma had similar levels of mu opioid receptor expression overall, but there were significant differences between non-cancerous skin samples and cancerous skin samples. This implies that fentanyl's pain-relieving effects are controlled by both the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. It's really interesting, especially because a large amount of opioid receptors occur in the brain and spine. It is worth mentioning that there are many analogs or types of fentanyl. The high presence of fentanyl in illicit drugs is increased because simple changes made to the core structure of fentanyl can result in products with an even higher potency, such as the drug carfentanil. Carfentanil is especially dangerous when mixed with other drugs, since it is used in veterinary medicine as a strong tranquilizer to sedate large animals such as elephants. The large influx of new synthetic opioids spreading through the street drug market, including fentanyl, has created the need to come up with a fast and effective method to determine the risk these substances have on the public safety since there are little to no available data for these new opioids. In response, the United States FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research created a molecular docking model, which is a method that predicts binding affinity or how well a molecule binds to its receptor. In 2017, scientists conducted a study using this model, in this case, using it to determine the strength or how well different types of fentanyl molecules can bind to the mu opioid receptor. They also used the model for different types of morphine drugs to see how potent fentanyl is compared to them. 
they found that some fentanyl analogs, such as carfentanil, have significantly lower binding scores, while less potent fentanyl analogs have increased binding scores. They also found that the morphine drugs had a higher binding score compared to all of the fentanyl drugs. So what does this mean? A low binding score means that the drug binds firmly to its receptor, while a higher binding score means that the drug does not bind as well to its receptor. The study reveals that all types of fentanyl have a higher potency compared to other types of opioid drugs. It's clear that the potency of fentanyl is a recurring theme here. This is the defining feature that tends to distinguish this drug from others within the opioid class. Most legal fentanyl is prescribed to help with postoperative pain or chronic pain in cancer patients. Illicit fentanyl is often used to cut other drugs. As we discussed before, this decreases the purity of whatever drug it's being mixed with and is therefore more economically feasible for drug dealers. This also means that drug users aren't always aware that they're taking something that contains fentanyl. This is naturally extremely dangerous because it's so potent that a very small amount can lead to overdose or even death. Yes, and fentanyl is a really dangerous drug due to its strong opioid effects and its ease of being mixed with other drugs. These are some of the reasons why we as a community should support and take part in harm reduction strategies that can save a lot of lives. Harm reduction is a set of practical strategies and ideas to help reduce the negative consequences associated with drug use. Techniques include using fentanyl test strips to detect the presence of fentanyl in illicit drugs before using them. Another life-saving technique is knowing how to use naloxone, a drug that reverses opioid overdose by displacing the opiate drug from the receptors on the nerves that control respiration. This allows the overdose victim that exhibits respiratory depression to breathe again. So now let's discuss some of the factors that could lead to someone seeking out fentanyl or opioids in general. Well, Abril, there are a lot of factors at play here, and it can be difficult to answer a question like that in such a short conversation. People who seek out drugs usually do so because they're experiencing some sort of physical or psychological problem. Because opiates are effective pain relievers and act on the body's emotional centers, it can be easy to become addicted to that sort of relief. Some other factors that can play a role in drug-seeking behavior are race, age, socioeconomic status, and psychological state. For example, black individuals in the United States are far more likely to become addicted to heroin. This is further pronounced in urban black individuals. One particular study done in 2019 analyzed this phenomenon and concluded that public health programs aren't as helpful for black people in the United States, especially in regards to treating addiction. Could you explain that a little bit more? Sure. The authors of this study talked about how it's potentially problematic to view opiate addiction as beginning with a legal prescription. The opioid epidemic is commonly thought of as the result of people being prescribed an opiate from their doctor, eventually being weaned off of that legal prescription and in turn becoming addicted to that drug. Naturally, this leads people to seek out illicit opiates to avoid withdrawal symptoms. Unfortunately, a large percentage of people who have opiate use disorders developed an addiction starting with an illicit substance. Urban individuals of color are commonly using ineffective methods to attempt to determine the purity of the heroin that they're taking. For example, many participants of this study reported that they use color inspection to determine whether their heroin is cut with fentanyl, and that's obviously not a super accurate way to figure out whether or not your drug is pure. 
The study also considered how getting drug dealers off the streets might not be beneficial for drug addicts because it increases their risk of unwanted fentanyl exposure because they're forced to get drugs from untrusted sources. Wow, that's a huge problem and something I haven't really considered. Attempts to get drugs off the street may actually increase the risk of overdose. Other factors that can increase someone's chances in drug-seeking behavior are vulnerability due to family history or life experiences, trauma that a person may have had such as his first childhood experiences, or experiencing intimate partner violence. Yeah, that makes sense. People who seek out illicit drugs tend to do so because they need help dealing with some sort of issue. Now that we've discussed the dangers of fentanyl, let's revisit its federal scheduling. Fentanyl is a Schedule II drug under the Controlled Substances Act, meaning that it has a high abuse potential, but also has known medical uses as well. Do you agree that it's placed in the right category? Overall, yes. I feel that fentanyl can be medically beneficial depending on the pain severity of the situation. In certain medical cases, fentanyl can provide benefit to those patients. However, I think that other options should be considered before providing patients with a type of fentanyl drug for chronic pain as well. Fentanyl has a high abuse potential, and there are other treatment methods to better manage chronic pain that are safer and have less risk for serious adverse reactions. Because of the risk for misuse, abuse, addiction, and overdose, the FDA has required many types of fentanyl drugs to be available only through a restricted program called the Transmucosal Immediate Release Fentanyl Access Program where health professionals, outpatient pharmacies, and distributors must enroll in the program. Patients who use these drugs are also required to review the information on the drug's risks and their possible side effects. I think this program is really beneficial as it restricts the prescribing of the drugs and helps keep in check those who are prescribing quick-absorbing fentanyl to appropriate patients. And so I feel that fentanyl is appropriately classified as a Schedule II drug, but should be made sure to be tightly regulated. I agree that alternative therapies for pain relief should be considered before jumping to opiate use as the ultimate cure-all, and I also personally feel that fentanyl is appropriately scheduled because there are some instances that necessitate the need for such a potent drug. Opiates are highly effective, but come with a big risk of addiction. There are countless other ways to get pain relief. Professor Tariq Akhtar from the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada has studied canaflavin A and canaflavin B. These molecules come from the cannabis sativa plant and are non-psychoactive, meaning that they don't alter brain function. Professor Akhtar has proved that these molecules are highly effective pain relievers because they target inflammation directly at the source. Wow, that's interesting. I haven't heard of that study. Let's now talk more about non-drug treatments for chronic pain. Physical therapy, massage therapy, acupuncture, and nerve stimulation are all effective treatments for dealing with chronic pain that don't involve drug use. Yes, it's good to know there are alternatives out there, and overall, those alternatives may be better in the long run for individuals. It's good to know that someone having chronic pain does not mean that they need to use opiates. Now that we're getting close to the end of our time together, let's explain to our listeners why fentanyl research is important. Understanding how fentanyl affects the body is essential in developing safe methods for using fentanyl. Because it's so much more potent than other opioids, the method of administration is important for reducing addiction risk. If someone is using fentanyl intravenously or topically where they snort it, the risk of addiction becomes significantly higher. 
This is because the effects of these methods come on extremely quickly, and fentanyl, like other opiates, produces intense feelings of euphoria, leading to a high that some people might want to chase. On the other hand, the most common way that fentanyl is used in the medical field is with pain patches, so under the supervision of a doctor, the risk of addiction lessens. However, with that being said, pain patches mean that the drug stays in your body for a pretty long period of time, even after the pain patch is taken off, because it's already in your bloodstream. So even if the patches are used legally, then people can still face the risk of overdose. That is true. And some individuals might not understand how to use them and could overdose as well. Other individuals find a way to abuse pain patches by removing the gel contents and injecting or consuming it. Yeah. And when we're talking about addiction, I think it's important to understand that certain groups of people are more prone to addiction based on their genetics and circumstances. It's important to understand that not all addiction begins after having medicine prescribed by a doctor. Some people are just exposed to drugs naturally in their environment, or they have genes that might make them more prone to becoming addicted to a substance after they initially try it. Some people may be able to do illicit substances once or twice and have no problem with becoming addicted, while others may do an illegal substance and then become so caught up in how it made them feel that they can't think about anything but getting the drug again. And as we've mentioned before, many people have some sort of undiagnosed issue that leads them to self-medicate. And then when someone finds that sort of relief in using a drug, it becomes easy to come back to that again and again because they're not getting any sort of other treatment for it. That's right. I think it's important to emphasize that biological and social factors both come into play here. Some individuals, like you said, Anastasia, could be genetically more likely to have a substance use disorder, but it is also very much depending on the individual's social and cultural environment. Exactly. Addiction goes far beyond morality. It's not an issue from a moral standpoint. Early moral models of addiction are not valid anymore because now we understand that there are actual physical changes that go on within the brain and in the body that cause someone to become addicted or stay addicted, and then even cause somebody to eventually relapse once they're not addicted anymore. So it's not really appropriate to just look at someone who has a substance use disorder and say that, oh, you know, they're a bad person because they're addicted to this drug or they're a bad person because they sought out the drug and used it in the first place. I completely agree. We all have to work together to break the stigma that people who use drugs don't have enough willpower to stop using them. It's not about willpower, but rather physical changes, like you said, are actually happening in the body that can make it hard to break the vicious cycle of addiction. I believe healthcare providers should continue to share with patients who have a substance use disorder about how their brain has changed and of the attainable goal of recovering and managing the disorder with office-based opioid treatment and compassion, of course. Office-based opioid treatment refers to outpatient treatment services provided by opioid treatment programs by clinicians to patients with addiction involving opioid use. And with that, I think we should wrap up by providing some hopeful research on this topic to our listeners. Definitely. This topic can get quite depressing otherwise. One hopeful thing that I'd like to discuss is a new study of a drug called BU08028. Researchers have developed a chemical that essentially provides all the desired effects of an opiate without any of the side effects. When administered to primates, the drug produced long-lasting pain relief without inducing respiratory depression, acute physical dependence, or addiction. 
These side effects are among the most dangerous risks that go along with opioid use, so I think that this study provides a lot of insight into the future of opioid research. That's awesome. I really hope that drug takes off and that there can eventually be human clinical trials so it can be used in society. Yeah, me too. That's the end of our time now. Thank you so much for coming in, Umbrella. Thank you, Anastasia. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode on fentanyl and will consider sharing and talking about it with others. Thank you. ClubCore is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville, with sound engineering support by undergraduate Kat Sawyer. Jessica Fox, a UNCA graduate, wrote our theme music. Special thanks to the UNCA Video Production and Media Design Lab for their help with this project, and thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including episode credits and links to the research discussed in this episode at clubcore.com episodes. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time. <laughs>